You're listening to Behind the Note Podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show is made to educate, inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis. Hello, everyone. Thank you for pressing play today. We are at episode number eight already. I can't believe it. Time is really going quickly. I want to say thank you so much for your support. We are currently, as of this recording, number two in New and Noteworthy under the music section. So I want to say thank you so much because without you, that would not happen. And I got some names right here that I want to read off. These are the people who rated the show and not not just rated, but left a comment. These are the people who left a comment. So I want to say thank you to Drew Fredrickson. Thank you to Goda. Thank you to Julia LK. Thank you, Kelly Inscott. Thank you, Raquel Davis. And thank you, William Lynch. Now, there were others that rated the show but did not leave a comment. I don't have a way of knowing who that is. But if that was you, I want to say thank you so much. And I want to encourage everyone else, if you're listening and you did not rate the show, you did not leave a comment, please do that. We need that so that we can be visible and new and noteworthy. Uh, that goes to be number one. I mean, who doesn't want to be number one, right? So we're, we're number number two currently in the music section. And I, I, I desire to be discovered in the education section as well. So a higher ranking will help that as well. So I just wanted to start the show off by saying thank you. Now, also, I have a desire to do question and answers, a question and answer segment on the podcast. I mentioned this in episode number one, but I can't do that without your input. I need you to go to behindthenote.com. On the right-hand side, there's a tab that gives you the option to leave me a voicemail. Yes, you can leave me a voicemail on the internet. So click on that, leave me a voicemail with your question, and you will hear your voice on this show, and we can answer your question. That'll be great. I'm looking forward to that. That's something I really would like to do. Let's get right to the content for the day. We have a great show for you today. Today's guest has 32 CDs as a sideman, three CDs as a leader, has earned two Grammy Awards, plus an additional nomination. He also owns a charity that is called Don't Miss a Beat. He's played with Winter Marcellus, Nicholas Payton, Benny Golson, Christian McBride, and a whole lot of other people. They're legends of our time. But it, it brings me great joy. It brings me great pleasure to introduce to you today Ulysses Owens Jr. Thank you so much, Ulysses, for joining us on the show today. I'm glad that you accepted the invitation. Of course, man. It's my honor. I discovered that you started a charity called Don't Miss a Beat. Will you tell us about that? Sure, man. It's actually my, myself and my family. Uh, the, the idea was sort of between myself and my mother. We had, you know, for many years, I grew up in the church and that's where, you know, I learned how to play because my family is very uh, instrumental in the church through ministry as well as in, in music. So we had been a part of several churches where we had started music ministries and youth ministries. And, and so finally, because I'm kind of the, the enterprising thinker i'm like you know what we need to own you know our own business and, and if we have all these abilities we need to form that into something that can one be useful 
for the com community, but also something that we can own and leave it as a legacy to our children. And so uh, my, my family pretty much made a unanimous decision and said, okay, you're right. So what should we do? And so the first thing that we knew we wanted to do was education because, you know, I come from a family of educators and, you know, like my mother was in corporate America and, you know, we have um, teachers and social service workers. And so education was something that we were very passionate about. And so the first program that we decided to apply for was a program um, that would help kids in Jacksonville uh, with the dropout rate, because at that particular time that we applied, it was probably early 2006, the, the high school dropout rate in Jacksonville was so incredibly high because kids were getting suspended from school. And then what would happen is they would come back after their suspension and they would be so out of whack with the work and not know where to go. And then they would just drop out of school. And then that's where the a lot of the crime and the violence and you know whatever would happen. So basically, we decided to form an organization called Don't Miss a Beat. And essentially what was going to happen was the kids were going to come to our center and we would work with them in between their suspension. And then when they went back to school, they would be caught up with their work and not miss a beat, you know, and they would be able to graduate. And so what happened was we didn't get that bid. We didn't get the, the bid uh, for the program that the city offered to support, you know, with funding. So we were very discouraged. And so we said, well, you know, maybe this is not it. And so my mom said to me, she said, hey, what other ideas do you have? And I said, well, what about a music and art summer camp. I said, what if we took some kids from the projects, we set up in the projects where they really need us, and for eight weeks, we taught them everything about music, dance, and drama, and at the end, we make them put on their own musical. It was such a success uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, that that was about almost six years ago, and from that success, the city has given us a building, so we have a community art center now. We have our summer camp that now is about to be six years old. We're actually in the process now of a, a global partnership with a foundation like us in Paris and in Togo, Africa. And we're getting ready to do a joint function this summer. So now it's blown up and it's really done really well. And it's, it's, we've impacted now over a thousand kids in the local area of Jacksonville, Florida. So it's, it's a blessing, man. It's really, it's, it's, I always say it's my life's work, you know, when, and my family being able to do it with me, it's, it's been an honor. Wow. Yeah. That's really incredible story, man. You got me pumped up. I'm excited. <laughs> and it's like, it's it's I'm I'm sorry that you didn't get that initial bid because that's a great idea. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting because we as as we've now been known in the city and we've talked to people about it, they are actually happy that we didn't get it because what they were saying was if we got that bid in terms of funding support, it would have been very difficult. Whereas, and with what we're doing now, it's much easier to get funding to be able to make a more uh, maximum impact. And we kind of end up doing that vision now like we have you know our main thing is a music and art summer camp but we have a community art center that we operate five days a week and that's where we do after school tutoring and so within that after school tutoring program we sort of address those those needs that we initially wanted to address so we have kids come to us who are failing school or, or dealing with aspects of illiteracy and we have great tutors who come in and, and sort of catch them up to where they need to get to. So we still are kind of operating with that vision as well. Yeah. Wow, that's really incredible. So who who are your partners? You said it's your family. Yeah, so so I'm an artistic director. That's my official title. My mother, Gwen Owen, she is director of development. So she is the woman who gets out there. And, and honestly, if it was not for her, uh, my Aunt Esther Potier, who is director of the, the children, also my other aunt, Juanita Ings, who is assistant director, uh, my sister, who is in finance, she's, you know, the one that does all the, 
financial, you know, uh, trajectories for us along with, you know, we have a, a bookkeeper as well and a, an accountant. Um, then my uncle, Tony, he's the one that also helps with the kids. My father is a, is, is a builder. So he pretty much anything that we need in the center built or, or even for our stagings and our productions, he does all that. Uh, and then the cousins, you know, we surround the, the project as well and assisting in whatever skills that we have. So, yeah, man, it's, it's, it's completely family. And then now we have some extended family. And then because of the success of the program, um, we now have other partners in the city. So we have UN University of North Florida, who they partner with us through some of our tutoring. We have uh, Jacksonville University that partners with us as well. We have uh, the, the whole reason why we have our center is through a partner, Jack's Parks of Recreation, Cultural Council, City Council, you know, so now we're pretty plugged in uh, in the city of Jacksonville and been getting a lot of great support. So. Wow, that's really impressive. You truly do have community in your family that's being uh, built outward. That's really great. I like that. It's, it's an honor, man. You know, the, the last thing I'll say about it is, you know, for me, I knew being a musician was something that I, I wanted to do. And I always tell people being a musician for me is very is very selfish as much as as a drummer I give. Um, but it, it was a selfish desire I've had since I was two years old. This new desire for my foundation with my family is completely self selfless for me, you know, because I feel like in life we all should have something that we give alms to, you know. So if you have, you know, whether it's a job or something that you love and that's your selfish thing that you make money and it feeds your own thing. But then what are you doing also to give back? And so for me, that's what Don't Miss a Beat is. And I, I, I love it. It really fuels the other stuff that I get to do. I have maybe one more question uh, sure. about this. Because personally, I wanted to start a similar program, but I just really don't know where to begin. And I know I'm not the only one. So <laughs> tell us, how, how does one go about starting this officially? Something the, the, like the this. First yeah. The first thing I always tell people, because, you know, me, my mother and I laugh, you know, I said if somebody would have pinched me and told me, you know, when I walked across the stage at Juilliard and when she was leaving her job, that we would have a nonprofit, you know, six years later, we'd all laugh. But what I would say is the first thing that you have to start off with is a passion. One of the things that I tell people, and I'm glad musicians are hearing this, is that the passion that I had for music was so unending, like to the point where. I, I was never going to be satisfied until I had a chance to play the Vanguard or I never was going to be satisfied unless I got a chance to sit on the stage next to a Christian McBride because I've always been that ruthless and hungry for what I wanted. And if you have an idea for a nonprofit or a charity, you have to be that hungry for it because what's going to happen is you're going to start out with the idea and you're going to be charged and excited like you are now talking to me. But then what's going to happen is literally, dude, for like the first three years, we had no help. Like literally the first three years of our organization, we funded every aspect of what we needed through our family. Like we tied into the organization because a lot of people see nonprofits come and go. And so what they do is they say, okay, that's great. You want to help some kids? Okay, cute. Make it, make it survive. And if you can survive for two to three years, then we'll give you some money. And literally, dude, that's what happened. So I would say for anybody that wants to do it, First thing is be passionate and make sure that you check the idea and 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 you know read read resources like you know Black Enterprise or or even you know other uh, business magazines like Inc and Entrepreneurship Magazine because for anybody that wants to start a business they have a lot of great checkpoints you know of like okay if you want to start a business this is how you flush out the idea you know this is who who you talk to here's your resources like our family we actually got 
profiled in Black Enterprise on an article called How to Start a Nonprofit. And in that article, they actually talk a lot about, you know, this is what you do to start. So, but I, but I think beyond all of that, you got to pick an idea that you really believe in because if nobody else believes in it, it's got to be something that you will carry forward, carry forward no matter what because that's what you're going to need. That Black Enterprise article, do you remember the month and, and year that was? Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't, but I will say it's like a, it happened last year. And if you Google, if you Google um, either my name or don't miss it, be, you know, comma Black Enterprise article, how to start a nonprofit, it'll pop up because it was definitely uh, probably like mid, mid 2013. Okay. But um, they have some great great resources and you know and then the other thing is really have a team you know people like i have to say if it had not been my family i don't really know how we would have got through it because you know literally sitting next to people who the same blood is running through your vein and their vein it commits you to something to a way of like you know what i can't back out of it and something so that, that you said man stood out in my ears you use the term tithe and a lot yeah. of people wouldn't use it that's a spiritual term oh yeah i, and, I believe in it <laughs> and it has to do with the matter of your heart so yeah. I think that's actually probably one of the main reasons why you guys are successful now. Well, you know, man, we, we just try to do do our part. So and, and I'm thankful for people like you who, you know, who, who get the word out there about what we're trying to do. All right. Well, let's uh, transition into the music talk. Oh, man. So uh, you, you said that I heard you say two years old. Uh, yeah. You, you mentioned church. So did you start yeah. playing at a young age in church? Yeah, man. Um, my mother is a choir director in church. And um, and so apparently I'm told, you know, during one of the rehearsals, because I was a little rambunctious as a kid, they sat me next to the drummer because she could sort of teach the parts and, and keep an eye on me. And so apparently I hear like one day that the drummer was playing and I was playing next to him and they realized that he was I was keeping time with him. So they like let me stand up and play. And that was sort of where it began. And, and you know, and, and especially in the African-American church, you know, when they hear you can play at three years old and you all of a sudden you're going to play for some kind of service. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so I immediately um, started playing for the children's church. And then probably by the time I was seven or eight years old, the drummer got angry because he wasn't getting paid what he wanted to get paid. And so at about seven or eight years old, I became the drummer for the church. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, and it probably was one of the... Um, greatest things that I think could have ever happened for me because I was telling someone the other day, I, I'm thankful my parents taught me a lot of great things, but one of the really cool things they taught me was responsibility. And even at that eight or nine year old age, they taught me the the effect that my presence had at that church. Meaning, listen, if you don't decide to show up on Sunday, that's a problem. The church needs you. And also you need to offer your gift to God and God giving that gift comes with a responsibility to serve. So they taught me that at like eight. So now, you know, at 31, you know, when I have to get on a plane and I don't feel like getting on the plane, I had this, this, this sort of dedication to service that was taught to me and instilled to me through the church and through my parents. So yeah, man, I, you know, I've been doing it a long time. So when did you, I guess, transition your awareness from yeah. playing in church to uh, playing jazz or any other style of music? Um, I have a cousin who's a very, very talented musician, and it was probably around the age of 12 to 13 that he played a couple of recordings that literally changed my life. One recording was Art Tatum's Honeysuckle Rose. Um, uh, no, excuse me, Art Tatum, he played maybe like Someone to Watch Over Me. And then he played uh, Oscar Peterson's Honeysuckle Rose. And I never heard anything like that in my life. I was like, oh, my God, like, what, what is that sound? It was old, but it was new, you know. 
Um, and then uh, my father has always been into soul music and like sort of jazz fusion. And he played a recording of Yellow Jackets and actually took me to go see the Yellow Jackets play at our Jacksonville Jazz Festival. Um, and so I met Will Kennedy, but I got recordings when Ricky Lawson was in the group. So I was kind of like, okay, what's this jazz thing, you know? And then um, I found out about Dave Welkel. So my goal after that was to be the black version of Dave Welkel. And then uh, where the real jazz bug was hit for me was um, I came to New York at 16 to visit my cousin because I knew I wanted to come to New York for college, but I didn't know quite where. And I heard about Manhattan School of Music. And so I went and met with John Riley. He, he agreed to see me. And he heard me play and he said, man, you sound good, kid. He said, but, you know, you got a lot of gospel chops and stuff. He said, and that's great. But if you want to play this music, he said, you got to check out the music. He said, you know, when you go home, buy this recording and let's see what happens. And that recording was Miles Davis's uh, Milestones with Philly Joe Jones. Mm -hmm. And I never forget when the recording came on and I heard, you know, uh, two bass hit. It just is like something shot through me. And literally from that day on, man, I just I never listened to anything else. Uh, probably for another eight or nine years. I mean, I went from Philly to Jimmy Cobb to Elvin Jones. I also started working in Jacksonville. I started uh, playing with a lot of local older jazz musicians about 16. So after that, man, I just went crazy, you know, and that, that was that was where the bug was hit was like, I want to be a jazz musician. I already knew I wanted to be a musician, but jazz was was my calling at 16. So how did you end up at Juilliard? You did go to Juilliard, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So so that was crazy because at 16, I knew that I wanted to be a jazz musician and I knew I wanted to move to New York. So I was on the track to go to Manhattan School of Music. Then all of a sudden, another outer body experience happened. I got so hungry for music because I, I have a kind of addictive personality. Like when I'm into something, I just I go crazy for it. So so I started downloading like I would go to the library and I buy get CDs and download them. It was like the early, early version of iPod, because um, you, you could download CDs on your computer and then transfer them into a library. So I just started ripping all these CDs from the library and, you know, doing like 10, 15 a week. And one CD was a J.J. Johnson CD called Let's Hang Out. And it was a double. There was two drummers on the session. One drummer was Victor Lewis, who was obviously a legend. And the other one was Lewis Nash. I heard the same thing like with Philly Joe Jones. I heard Lewis Nash's beat. It was something that shot through my body. When I heard the way he phrased, he like he did a fill between the uh, like a combination between the snare and the toms. And I was like, I don't know who that is, but I want that sound like that. That is what I want. And so I found out it was Lewis Nash. And I literally started to research everything that he that he had been on. At that time, I was like, I want to move to New York. I want to go to Manhattan, but I want to study with this guy, Lewis Nash. And I also started finding out that he was like the most in-demand drummer in New York at the time. So Juilliard says, oh, well, we're going to have a program now. And I'm like, what? Like Juilliard? Because what happened was they had a minority program where they would allow uh, high school kids, uh, minorities in 12th and 11th grade, come and like spend three days there and like check out the campus because they were trying to boost minority enrollment. And they had an alumni who had sort of paid for this. So that's where I first found out about Juilliard. But at the time, they only had a classical program. And so by the time I got to my 12th grade year, I knew that I could get in for orchestral percussion, but I didn't want, I didn't love it because I talked to Daniel Druckmann from the Philharmonic and he was like, Ulysses, you could probably be a snare drum major and all this stuff. Um, but I didn't love it. So anyway, I found out that Juilliard now wants to institute a jazz program and Lewis Nash was going to be the drum teacher. So I was like, oh my God, I, this program is made for me. Like I have to do it. And so 
long story short, I go through the process, man. And um, in April of 2000, um, 2001, yeah, I got the call um, that I was accepted, you know, to the, the, the inaugural program. And that was where my life changed again. Um, but, uh, you know, Juilliard, I, I feel like for me, especially then, under the tutelage of Victor Goins, I felt like it was the kind of program that was really made for people like me. And, and even, you know, who you mentioned earlier, Willie Applewhite and, and others who came through that program, it was made for young students who were hungry and had potential. And they were really into shaping and developing talent. So, yeah, that's sort of my Juilliard journey. Sorry it's so long. But. No, that's exactly <laughs> what we needed to hear, man. How did Juilliard affect your current career? Oh, man, it, 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 it created what would not be in existence without it. You know, what Juilliard taught me was being around guys like Winter Marsalis and Victor Goins and, you know, Lewis Nash and, and, and the assortment of great players, world-class players. It taught me that what I wanted and what I had dreamed was actually possible. And that, that was what was so important because, you know, a dream is a dream until you actually are in contact with those that are living a dream. And so what it did was it put me in the face of a winter Marcella so that I could see the career that I had dreamed. I could see Lewis Nash, you know, he would invite me to studio sessions. And so that was actually how I first met um, Christian McBride because he came to Juilliard, but I didn't get to see him and really talk to him as much. But I got invited to, with Lewis Nash to a studio session. And I just was hanging out as a fly on the wall. And that's where I got to meet McBride. So Juilliard really shaped me. And, and it also expanded my thinking from just being a drummer. Because when I moved to New York, I was like, I'm going to be a great drummer. When I got to Juilliard and I saw people like Winton and Victor and, you know, and, and Christian McBride, who weren't just great musicians, they were great artists. Um, and they had so many aspects of the music together. So Juilliard really allowed me to hone my skill. It also refined me. They kicked my butt while I was there. And it made me understand that just being talented in one area wasn't enough, but you needed to really embrace the entire aspect of the music industry. And so it really, I owe a great deal of, of, uh, of, of my success to Juilliard because Juilliard unveiled things in my career and possibilities, you know, within me. So you, you said something that I want to ask you about. Sure. You you said you started out as a fly on the wall, and then that's how you yeah. met Christian McBride. I, I'm hoping that you can give us some advice or tell us your story, how you went from being a fly on the wall to <laughs> playing with him, see? Because I met Wynton Marcellus, and I'm not in the big band. You, know what I'm, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Well, you know well, you know what's interesting is one thing I, I'll tell people, and I said this the other day, someone had, had interviewed me for something, and I said, listen, <clears throat> I'll never say that I'm the most talented. I never will. I've, I've met people, you know, when you meet people like, you know, uh, John Batiste or Christian, I mean, Christian Sands is a perfect example. You know, when you hear he's in the trio, for those that may not know, he's in the trio with myself and Christian McBride. He's a 24-year-old virtuoso. Like, when you hear this dude play four bars, you're like, all right, that's a gift from God. And I never equate myself to that. I never feel like, you know, when you hear me, that same experience of virtuosity comes through my playing. I think that it has started to. But at 24, he is on this other place. But one thing I will tell people is there's not many people that work harder than I do. And I and that's the only thing that you'll ever hear me be really like confident and, and borderline, you know, arrogant about is I am a workaholic. And so to answer your question, I when I know what I want, which is something that I've been really blessed to know for years, I've always felt like as a child, I always had the I, I always knew what I wanted. I was always able to identify at each stage of my life where I wanted to be and what I wanted. And so I would say 
the way you go from being a fly on the wall in a studio to being in the band of a person like Christian McBride is you identify, is that someone you want to work with? Like I never forget years ago, one of my great mentors who, who just passed a year ago, who that Juilliard was my first education and this was my second education was with Mulgrew Miller. And Mulgrew Miller used to literally mentor me, you know, week by week. And he would say things like, you know, make a list of who you want to play with. And once you make a list of who you want to play with, learn their music, hang out with them, go to their gigs, get to know their band. And not in a facetious way, not in a way of like hovering, but truly like being educated and then wait your turn. And I have to say, man, that list that I made years ago at Mulgrew, I played with not only everybody on that list, but other people that I never imagined that I didn't even have the knowledge to put on that list. And so I would say for encouraging to encourage musicians, you got to figure out what you want, go after it, be in a posture of humility to, to serve these guys and figure out how to really learn their music and then wait your turn and surely your turn will come. So that, that for me has been the story of my life. Like I always tell people I was the sub King. I mean, that's how I started playing with Christian McBride. Like literally he has formed his new band with Carl Allen, um, the, the inside straight group. And he had heard me play the summer before Carl Allen started getting really busy with teaching at Juilliard. And he called me up and he said, Hey, you know, Ulysses, man, I got this tour Carl can't make. And I know, I know you can swing, man. So come, come on and do this tour with us. I was nervous as ever. I went the first note we played together. He said, all right, you know, pull back a little bit in the beat. And after that, five and a half years later, I'm in all his groups and everything that he does just about. And so I say that to say, when you get that opportunity, you got to nail it. But I think what Christian saw in me was the ability that, okay, this guy can play, but he also is willing to let me mold him into what I need him to be for my group. And I've always let different band leaders do that with me. Like I didn't come in with this preset vibe of like, yo, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. I came in with like, hey, I'm a swinging drummer and I'm open to whatever you want me to do and whatever you want me to t you want to tell me so that I can make your music and your band sound great. My goodness, you just gave us so much value just there. So I just yeah. want to kind of recap for everyone so nobody really misses this. So <laughs> in a nutshell, in a nutshell, guys, if you want to follow the same steps, you got to remain humble. Yeah. You got to work diligently. Yeah. Find a mentor. You said Mulgrew yeah. Miller was your mentor. Yeah. And write your goals down. Yeah. Again, that's actually a spiritual principle. Yeah, absolutely. There, yeah. there's a there's a scripture in, in Habakkuk. Yeah, I don't. I man, I can't. I can't recite it. I should be able. Yes, to write it. write the vision, make it plain, and at the appointed time, it'll come to pass. That's a yep. law. Yep. <laughs> and when you, I live. Yeah, when you consider that it's yeah. a law. Yeah. It it it's actual truth, and it will happen. Yep. I'm glad you pointed that out, man, because that's also the story of my life. Yep. So, but this this isn't about me. You're our feature guest. <laughs> <laughs> but you and I, hopefully, we could talk more about this. Please, uh, please, know, off, man. Of the, off of the show. Okay, so many questions. Uh, <laughs> goodness, man, this is this is great. Well, will you tell us about the road, guys? Ulysses is such a humble guy, but I'm going to bring this up. <laughs> this guy's a two-time Grammy Award winner. Uh oh. Yeah. So, will you will you please tell us about the road? to two Grammy Awards and um, okay. how, how are they similar and, and how are they different? The, the two um, well, well, what was interesting the first time I had no idea that it was going to happen. That was, that was, you know, Kurt um, Elling was a person who 
you know, everything he did had a was 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 up for a Grammy. So that was, you know, that was interesting in and of itself. So when we did that album, they said to us, you know, we recorded it and I was like, all right, it was great. And they said, you know, this is a possibility for you guys. So I was like, all right, cool, you know, whatever. And then, you know, the nominations came out. We got the nominations. I was like, all right, cool. Then I got a call the night of and um, and they were like, we won. And I was like, wow. You know, so I have to say the first one was sort of uh, kind of like a happenstance for me. You know, it was sort of I felt like I was I was thrust into it uh, in a way that I just I was a part of a team that they knew what they wanted. Again, like we talked about earlier, and they went after it. And Kurt uh, is so smart. You know, I mean, you know, one day I'm going to write a book, you know, years, years from now about what I've learned from each band leader and specifically for with Kurt, he's one of the smartest people I've ever met in terms of he knows what he wants and he knows specifically and strategically how to get it. And so with that Grammy, he really crafted a project. He and, um, and his producer, Lawrence Hopgood and collaborator, and also Marianne Topper, his manager at the time, I, I watched them craft a project that they knew was going to appeal to a certain type of audience and a certain demographic and was that was going to garner a certain level of attention and he got it. And so that was when I really, uh, my, my very early buddings of a producer started to really pay attention because I was like, wow, like they just put this puzzle together. Like, wow. And it, and it worked, you know? So the first one I felt like was, I just was a part of something, a machine that was already working. The second time with McBride, I remember being in the studio and we were we were listening to the playbacks and I remember uh, while we were listening to the playbacks because uh, actually Don Cheadle was actually in the studio with us. So we're listening to playbacks and we the, the first track, I think it was uh, Alphabet City or something came on and I never forget the playback finished and everybody said, wow, this is going to get a Grammy. And it, it was just like something in the magic. Like we hadn't even mixed it yet. There was, you know, there was no reverb. It was just raw files. And we and we literally said, okay, this is going to get a Grammy. And that was a moment where with McBride, similar to Kurt, he assembled a group of people that were so magical together. And so with that, I was like, okay, now I understand the other part of getting a Grammy is not only the recording aspect and, you know, the networking, whatever, but the other aspect is really putting together such an ensemble and such a band that they can really, you know, have everything they need for the recording to, again, get that kind of attention. So with McBride, it was a different situation, but very much the same kind of strategy. So I think, you know, for me, what I'll say is I never thought in a million years I would I would win a Grammy or that I'd be a part of a Grammy winning album or that I would be nominated again. And I, I you know, you, you don't think about that. All you to me, to my to my musicians who are listening Listen, man, play your butt off every time. Every time an opportunity comes, play well. When you're in the studio, I have to say, because this is a bigger conversation that, you know, is a whole other interview. But when you're in the studio, understand the studio and the, the live setting, they're two completely different things. And they require two different levels of study, you know. And that's something that I've had to learn as a drummer. When I go to the studio, I take a completely different set of cymbals and drums. When I play live, I do a completely different setup. And, and, and what I will say is people who win Grammys, their albums have concepts to them. They aren't just, oh, I'm going to get some cast together and play. These people, before you even get in the studio, they sit down and they start grafting a concept so that it can be sold together and have such a vision that it then gets the attention of the Recording Academy, you know? So 
that's sort of the long and short what my journeys with with the whole Grammy thing is, you know, if that if that helps, you know, it does help. Thanks for thanks for that perspective. We also want to know what you're doing today with your music and who you're working with. Well, you know, I had my my new album out, um, which was sort of my real expression of of where I feel like I'm I'm at now in my career. It's called Onward and Upward. It's my third album as a leader. Um, and, and it's interesting because, you know, everybody says, oh my God, I love the music. Are you going to tour with it? I can't even afford to tour with it. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a huge band full of a bunch of great people like Anad and Ruben and those guys. And we were fortunate to do two nights at Dizzy's uh, a month ago to celebrate the CD release. Um, but yeah, man, that, that music for me has been very near and dear. Um, and, and, you know, I love playing that music. And so that's sort of essentially the band that I'm working with now on my own. Um, but I'm still primarily doing a lot as a sideman. So my first sideman duty is obviously with Christian McBride and his trio. Then uh, that's been going well for about the last three and a half, four years. And we're touring a lot right now. Um, another group that I'm a part of is also Monty Alexander, his trio, and a group that he has called Harlem Kingston, Ex- Kingston Express. Uh, I also sub for Ali Jackson and Winter Marsalis, his uh, big band and his small group. Um, and then I'm also working with Diane Shore. Um, she just uh, re- kind of did a new project, and I'm a part of that project. So as a side man, I'm in I'm in about five to seven bands. <laughs> so so I'm always rotating and stuff. So uh, that's sort of my side man career. And then something that's really changed for me in the last three or four years, I've been producing a lot, um, and that's something that has really been so so joyful for me. I really love it and. Um, so yeah, I would say my career now is really starting to focus more on production and my side man duties and, and then, you know, doing other things, man. I'm one of these people that I'm so charged and moved by so many different types of experiences, you know, so I'm always open to collaborate with people and, and I'm really getting to that place in my life and my career where I enjoy new projects and, and, and kind of getting out of the, the status quo of just, okay, I'm a jazz drummer. I'm going to just do this. Now it's like I'm, I'm trying to do all kind of stuff, you know. So, so yeah, man, I kind of got a big, a, a big full plate, plate for the next, you know, year and a half or so of a bunch of really cool things. And then, you know, I live in New York, so stuff can always pop up, too. I got uh, some professional advice I'd like to get from you. Sure. What's your, what advice would you give to young musicians that have a dream to do exactly what you're doing? Very much what we said earlier, you know, the first thing I would do is, first of all, you know, decide and and aspire to what you understand you want to do. So understand what you want to do and have a goal of that. And then obviously aspire, aspire to it, like go after it. And then the other thing that I didn't mention in our first sort of inspirational part of that is you got to have self-awareness in this business, right? So what I mean by that is that I had to understand at 16 or 17 when I first met John Riley that I was not where I needed to be musically for what I desired, okay? So that's why I say you have to know what you want. So know what you want. You know, I want to be the drummer for X, Y, Z. Okay, we know what you want. Great. Now, go after it, okay? Second part. Third part, are you really ready for what you want, okay? And that's the third thing that has taken up from the time I was 16 till about 27 when I really started working. So that was over 10 years of a journey of, I knew what I wanted, I was going after it, but I was attaining the skill to be able to handle what I wanted. And so that to me is the missing thing that I I hear a lot, especially in this new generation of musicians now, is they know what they want, they're going after it, but they have not done the right self-analysis and awareness to know that they really may not have what it takes 
but that they can get what it takes. And so what happens now is the, the divide becomes, well, man, I'm dreaming it, I'm doing it, and I still ain't getting the gig, man. I've been calling McBride, I've been calling so-and-so, and they won't call me back. Well, because you don't have what it takes yet. And so that, to me, is the missing piece between where you are and where you want to be. Are you analyzing yourself honestly? So my, my goal or my, my encouragement to musicians are get in that practice room, record yourself, send it to somebody you want to play with and ask them for a true analysis. I have to say this and then I, at some point I have to, I got to go to some other stuff. But, you know, Mulgrew Miller said to me years ago when I asked him to mentor me, he said, Ulysses, I'm so glad you asked me to mentor you. He said, because so many young guys, I've offered to mentor them and they turned me down. He said, a lot of guys don't want to know what it takes to get better. He said, they want to be around you, but they don't want to know what it takes. And I, and I, and now I'm no longer, I'm not where Mogru is, but I have achieved a certain level of success where I can mentor some people. And I got to be honest, he's right. A lot of cats, I get Facebook messages and Twitter messages and, and emails every day from somebody who wants to get to know me, but it's because they want to take my gig, but they don't really want to know what I went through to get my gig. And so I say that to say, to sum it up. Self-awareness and self-analysis. If you want this thing and you want to be good at it, figure out what you don't know and, and learn that and be a better musician and you will get what you want. That's a great lesson. You know, I think that's a perfect place to stop. <laughs> perfect cool. place to stop. I have more questions, but I don't want to ruin a good thing. <laughs> Man, we really appreciate you for taking time out to share with us today. Anytime, Chris, man, I, I like you, man. I believe in what you're doing. And anytime I have a project or you just want to call me up, man, I, you know, I'm always here, man. Seriously, it's an honor. Thanks a lot for sticking with us this far. What a great interview with Ulysses Owens Jr. Thank you so much, Ulysses, for sharing your time with us. We are all very thankful for you. Well, that's all for today, guys. Please go to BehindTheNote.com if you do not receive emails from me. I send out emails once a week with valuable tips to help you toward a successful music career. And one more time, I want to say thank you to those who rated and reviewed the show on iTunes. And if you haven't done that and you've been listening to the show and you enjoy it, please go ahead and go to iTunes. Click the stars, rate the show, leave a comment. We'll be very thankful and we'll see you in episode nine. God bless you.